John chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 18. We'll probably dip into uh, up into 15 by kind of the end of the morning. Now, uh, some of you might know um, the late show talk show host Stephen Colbert. Some of you know who that is. He's kind of a famous actor. And it's interesting because from time to time when he's interviewing different actors, actresses, and celebrities, he asks, in my opinion, a really gutsy question. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's sort of in a string of questions, but he eventually asks, what do you think happens after you die? And it's interesting because you've got these actors, these actresses, these celebrities answering these questions, this sort of essential question, maybe perhaps the most difficult question to ask. The most important question to ask, what happens after death? Now, you don't need to watch these on YouTube to realize that these actors, these actresses, the celebrities, their answers, not great, not, not, not really full of much substance, but it's a good question. It's a gutsy question. And, and in some ways, I want to ask that question because underneath this text is a question but I want to reframe the question. And it's not just what happens after you die, but let me put the question to you this morning, which is the question that John wants us to wrestle with, which is, when you die, granting that there's a God, grant me that, and you stand before God, what question do you think he's going to ask you? Last week, Phil He worked us through chapter 5, verse 1 through 18. And in that section, it's a story. It's a story about a man who is healed. 38 years, almost four decades, this man is disabled. And in an instance, he's healed. And you might think, after four decades of being disabled and he's healed, this is a time for celebration, right? This is a time to party. I mean, the other day, I opened up my fridge and I found a Kit Kat and I almost did a backflip, right? This guy has been disabled for four decades. Let the party begin. Let's celebrate. There's a problem, isn't there? There's a big problem. And we see it in verse 9 of chapter 5. This is no time to celebrate because Jesus picked the wrong day to heal this dude. He healed him on the Sabbath. Oh, Jesus. Just... One other, any other day, and it would have been fine. You had to pick the Sabbath. There's intentionality, isn't there? Jesus doesn't pick the wrong day. He picks the right day because he's going to communicate. He's going to use this healing as an object lesson to teach some really deep theological truths. And so what unfolds, sort of the aquifer under the text, is this most fundamental of question. When you stand before God, what's he going to ask you? And actually, John chapter 5, starting in verse 18 through 29, there's a question. And the question that God's going to ask you at the end of time, when you stand before him, he's going to ask you one question and one question alone, which is, what did you do with my son? Look at it with me. Starting in verse 18. Um, I always give you kind of the big idea of the text. 
It'll be behind me on the screen. But the big idea is simply this. Jesus is the son of God who has authority over life and death. And we're going to unfold, sort of unwrap that big idea as we go along. But join me. I'm going to read this whole section and then we'll kind of work our way through it. Verse 18. Actually, let me start a little back further. Verse 15. The man went away. This is the, the man who was healed. He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We'll stop there. So, sort of context, right? Once again, we've got this man who's disabled, and he's healed by Jesus on the Sabbath. And the response, especially the religious elite, right? Hell hath no fury like a fundamentalist scorn. And here, they begin to persecute him. Verse 17, there's sort of a a question that's asked of Jesus. We we don't know what the question is, but based on Jesus' answer, we can infer the question. And the question that the religious elite were asking of Jesus was basically, Jesus, we know you're a teacher. We know you're a rabbi. We know you're wise, but what gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Do do you think that you are above the law? I mean, the, the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment is the Sabbath Commandment. Do you think you're above the Fourth Commandment? I mean, I know you healed this guy, and that's a good thing, but, but the ends don't justify the means. These are good questions, right? And so Jesus, in light of those sort of inferred questions, Jesus answers, verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, in Jesus' day, and actually there was, and before Jesus' day, there was this debate. Okay? And the debate was simply this. Does God work on the Sabbath? Because think about it, Uh, in kind of a biblical worldview, God is not some deistic God who just sets up the universe, washes his hands, and just backs away from it, and just lets it just work itself out. The biblical God is intricately 
involved in every aspect of creation. So I'll just give you one verse. Psalm 147 puts it this way. He, that's God, prepares rain for the earth. He gives the beasts their food and for the young ravens that cry. Meaning rain comes and rain comes on the Sabbath. And that's God's working. So so, so the question was, does God work on the Sabbath? And the answer was, well, God must work because in God's providence, how could the universe keep going? God is intricately involved in every, you know, particle and molecule. And and the universe would just collapse on itself if God was not sustaining it, upholding it. And so God's breaking the fourth commandment. But basically what people would say is, yes, God providentially upholds the universe on the Sabbath, thereby working on the Sabbath, but God isn't bound by the law like creatures are bound by the law. Not like this. So, so in my family, in our house, uh, particularly in the school year, my kids cannot watch television on, uh, on weekdays, school days, okay? That's, that's the rule. Now the question is, do Lisa and I follow that rule? <laughs> Answer, we probably should, but we don't. Now, I'm not saying I'm above that rule, but I am saying because I'm a parent, I set those rules and I am not obligated to follow those rules in the same way as my children. That, by way of analogy, was the sort of logic in Jesus' time. Yes, Jesus, because he created the law, he set the law, he's not exactly bound by the law in the same way we are. And so, that first sentence that first kind of phrase in verse 17, my father is working until now, that's not where the controversy is. Most Jewish people believe that. Yes, God was working on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, yep, my father's working on the Sabbath. Sustaining the universe. Healing people. Giving breath to people. But do you see where the controversy is? That second phrase attached to, my father is working until now, and I Jesus am working. Basically, Jesus is saying, if my father is working on the Sabbath, if he can work on the Sabbath, if he's above the fourth commandment, so am I. So do you get the tension? So the irony here is that the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, they, they don't persecute and want to kill Jesus because they misunderstand Jesus. It's because they understand Jesus that they want to kill him. Which makes sense why verse 18 follows from verse 17. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Right? Breaking the Sabbath, that's bad. But suggesting subtly that you are co-equal with the Father? We have a word for that. It's called blasphemy. And they had blasphemy laws that included death. And so Jesus, by saying that subtle phrase, they're like, oh, no, you don't. How dare you say that? And in one sense, I mean, we read and we're like religious Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're like, oh, those are the bad guys because we all, you know, most of us were raised in children's ministry. So we know who the good guys and the bad guys are. But, but those are the good guys, right? They're the, the Bible people. And they read, you know, Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they go, okay, I mean, I might not be a math professor, but I know that, like, if 
Jesus is God and, God, and the Father's God, and, and there's one God, like, that math doesn't work. And so there's like, we got a problem. I mean, to this day, if you have a Muslim neighbor, this is one of the hardest things for a Muslim to wrap their mind around, this whole idea of Jesus being the Son of God, because they're strictly monotheists. And so they think, how could that be? And so Jesus seems to be cutting a grins against the very doctrine of God that every Jewish man, woman, and child believed. And in some ways he was. So they sought to kill him. Now, at this moment, Jesus could do a few things. He, Jesus could say, okay, you misunderstood. You misunderstood the doctrine of the Sabbath. Jesus could have said, all right, I'm going to kind of give a biblical theological treatise of the Sabbath that really the Sabbath was typological, right? It was good. It was glorious. It was given to God's people, but it was always pointing to the, to the true Sabbath rest in the Messiah. I'm the Messiah, right? He could have done all this wonderful biblical theological treatise and debated Israelite religious leaders at that moment, right? He could have just rushed in, dominated them in a debate. Jesus doesn't debate that. I mean, we love debate. When someone says something that we perceive as wrong, we love to rush into a debate. I just love how Jesus rarely debates people. More often than not, Jesus asks questions or just makes claims. And that's what Jesus is going to do for the rest of the time, starting in verse 19 through 29. He just makes claim after claim after claim, nuance after nuance after nuance, about who he is, his identity. That's verse 19 to 29. And I wish we could get into every verse. Um, There are verses that I have no idea what they mean. People have died over a few of these verses. They're so complicated because they really are talking about the relationship between father, son, basically the inner Trinitarian relationship. And it's mysterious. And it's complicated. And it's... It's, it's necessary to talk about the Trinity with nuance. And that's what we see Jesus doing. But basically, if I could summarize verse 19 through verse 29, it's simply this. Jesus is saying, in the context of this healing of this man on the Sabbath, he's saying, you want to know why I can heal this man on the Sabbath? The answer is because of who I am, my identity. My, my, my identity as the Son of God and the Son of Man predicate or ground or give me the right and authority to heal whomever I choose. And that's what we see. So starting in verse 19, we'll just look at a few of these. And, and I promise you on some of these, I'm going to punt. Um, you can talk to, with me afterwards, but we're going to kind of talk about it on a 10,000 foot level and then try to apply why I think this is really, really important because we're going to see that there are these, these tensions put uh, forth among Jesus and the Father, and we can't, we have to live in these tensions. We have to set these tensions beside each other and have to say, A is true and B is true, and how we put them together is complicated, but they're both true, and they sit side by side, and there's no contradiction. So here, look there at verse 19. We see in verse 19 and verse 25, Jesus announces that he is the Son of God. Verse 19 says he's the son, and then if you go down to verse 25, it's the son of God, which is a title. 
And it's the title he's stealing. Jesus loves to steal Old Testament titles and kind of incorporate them into his life in order to communicate who he is theologically uh, to his, the people he's engaging with. And here he says, I am the son of God, which is interesting because in the Old Testament, who were the sons of God? Israel, right? In, in Exodus, God calls his people in the Old Testament, my sons, which is talking about their special relationship with God. They are, just like my kids have a special relationship with me, so Israel in the Old Testament had a special relationship with God. They were his special possession. Problem. Israel failed as sons. They failed as daughters. They disobeyed. They failed fell into sin after sin after sin. And so what what we have in the Old Testament is that God says, you are my son. I have this special relationship, this special covenant with you. And yet God's sons just break the covenant over and over again. But then embedded in the Old Testament is this promise that there will come out of this sort of Davidic stock, out of this Davidic line, there's going to come a better son. And this son is going to be all the things that Israel was meant to be and was and God asked them to be, and God called them to be, this Davidic son, all of the promises of God would be fulfilled in this Davidic son who would live perfectly in obedience to God the Father. And Jesus is saying, I am that son. Where Israel failed as sons of God, Jesus did not fail. And so he says, he he just, in different ways, talks about the special relationship he has with the Father and says, you know, as as I see the Father doing, I do, right? We we see this in children all the time, right? They they kind of mock us, but they they, they also do exactly what, like, we do. You you catch them just imitating you all over the place. And Jesus is using that sort of of language and imagery. It's like the the imagery of apprenticeship, That just as the son sees the father doing, so the son does. It's talking about this intricate relationship between father and son. That they're so united. That their hearts are so tied together. That their wills are so tied together. That when the son does something, the father does something. So there's not two wills. It's not like there's the son's will and there's the father's will. No, there's, there's one will. It's so tied intricately. There's so much union within the Godhead that when, when Jesus speaks... When you see Jesus doing, it's as if you're seeing the Father speak and do something as well. So if you want to see the affection of God for you, you can look at Jesus. If you want to see the emotions of God, you can look at Jesus. If you want to see how God interacts with the world, look at how Jesus interacts with the world. There is a connection, a unity, a oneness within this relationship between Father and Son. And though the Spirit isn't talked about, we could add that too. Father, Son, and Spirit have this perfect oneness, union within the Trinity. So let me just point these out in the text. Verse 19, we have the the son obeys the father. Then verse 20, the son displays God's will. Then verse 21, and this is kind of where it gets theologically ratcheted up. This son gives life just like the father gives life. Then verse 23, this son has authority to judge just like the father has authority to judge. Then verse 24, when the son speaks, if you hear the son, you hear the father. Verse 34. I mean, I speak falsely, knowingly and unknowingly all the time. But when Jesus speaks, it says, it's God speaking. 
without error. See, verse 19 to 26, it sort of fills the gap in with what is this Davidic son and how does this Davidic son, this son of God, relate to the father. And how he relates is in perfection, perfect harmony with his father. But if you know, if you know the Old Testament, you know that there's two problems. You see, in the Old Testament, it's very, very clear, and Phil read one of the texts. It's very clear that only God has the power over life and death. Only God. God has power to make someone go from death to life, and God has the power ultimately to judge. I mean, we see this, you know, most clearly in the Valley of Dry Bones, right? Or you see it in Elijah in the ministry. He, he, he brought a, um, a widow's son back to life. But it's very, very clear in every story that it's not these prophetic um, men who are like, have the power that originates in them to bring to life. No, it's always God. God says, do this, and I will give you the power to do it. So God alone has the power over life and death. And then God also only has the power to judge. I mean, just think of Adam and Eve. When do they get into a problem in the garden? When they decide they want to judge good from evil. That's when the wheels fall off. Only God has the power of life and death and judgment. And yet here, Jesus says, I have those powers. Do you see the problem? Or do you see what Jesus is saying? So not, not only is he the son of God, but that title is a designation to say he is co-equal with the father. He has the power, the same powers that God has. There's some attributes of God that he shares with us, right? God is love and we can love each other. But there's some attributes of God that he does not share with us. God is omniscient. I wish I was omniscient. I wish I would know lots of things. God does not share that with us. God does not share with anyone the power to bring dead people alive. The power over life and death. The power to say who, who, can, who has salvation and who has damnation. To put it that, that's not our power. Only God. And yet here we find out that Jesus has that power. Which de facto is suggesting that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. Jesus is claiming here divinity. He has authority. Look, look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I mean, we really think this story is about healing. And we want to go, oh, okay, this is a wonderful story about Jesus' compassion for a disabled man. But no, there, it's more than that. It's that, but it's way more than that. This is a story where Jesus intentionally heals a man on the Sabbath to communicate something particularly about his identity, which is he is the Davidic king. He is the son of God, co-equal with the father. He is God incarnate. I mean, all throughout John, he's slowly going to unveil who he is. They're trying to figure out who he is. Everyone's trying to figure out who he is. And here's another glimpse about who he is. He is the long-awaited son of God. Now, how would the son of God, how would the son of God bring eternal life? Here's, here's I think, one of the, the really interesting ironies of this text. I mean, 
The Jews say that Jesus is being blasphemous, but (laughs) ironically, they're the ones who are being blasphemous. They're speaking untruths about God by not understanding this kind of Trinitarian aspect of God. But the other irony is that they now seek to kill him. From here on out, Jesus has a bullseye on his back. But little do they know that their salvation comes by killing Jesus. Their only hope is if they get it wrong. Isn't that ironic? They get saved by doing the wrong thing. By Jesus dying in their place for sinners, their only hope is in the Son of God actually taking on their sin, dying in their place, being then resurrected so that they then can be sons of God. I mean, this is how you put your Bibles together. I mean, the Bible in one sense is is complicated, but in another sense, we can put our Bibles together really, really simply, and you could almost do it in thirds, right? That, That God calls us to be sons of God, which isn't talking about gender, it's just talking about position, that they were called to be sons and daughters of God, but we all sin. So Jesus becomes the ultimate son of God, so that we, when we put our trust and faith, when we hear his message and trust that Jesus really is the son of God, we now can become sons and daughters of the king. That's the story of the Bible. So here we have Jesus claiming this amazing truth about himself, that he is one with the Father. But there's another truth that he communicates, which in some ways is way more complicated, and we're not going to get into a lot, but I want to, by way of application, talk about it, because it's important. Because we see in here a couple times that not only does Jesus say, I am co-equal with the Father, but do you see that there's a distinction between Father and Son? A distinction in personhood? A A distinction in role? The Athanasian Creed, this is why creeds are important. The Athanasian Creed puts the Trinitarian relationship this way. Then we're going to kind of, I'm going to point out a few ways of how they put it together from this text another. But the Athanasian Creed starts this way, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is distinct, person of the Son, another and that of the Holy Spirit, another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory, unequal. Their majesty, co-eternal. What are the two truths put together? Father, Son, and Spirit, one, yet distinct in personhood. And they're put side by side. That's just classic Trinitarian orthodoxy. Father, Son, and Spirit, God, yet distinct in person. There's a oneness, and then there's distinction in the Godhead. And notice it. You see this all over the place, but notice that the Son submits to the Father. Never, ever will you ever read in your Bible that the Father submits to the Son. The Father and Son send the Spirit. Never does the Spirit send the Father. The Father has a distinct role in redemption, doesn't he? The Son has a very distinct role in redemption. The Spirit, a very distinct role in redemption. So in the Trinity, in the Godhead, it is not a flat egalitarianness. But there is a differentiation in role. Or we could say there is a divine order even in the Godhead. The Father and Son 
share the same essence, they share the same rank, same oneness, but in their relationship, there is a divine order even in the Trinity. Now, why do I point this out? Because this, in so many different ways, is being attacked. And what I mean by that is, is this, that if you deny in our culture and in our world, if you deny a role, it's tantamount to denying personhood. So for for most of human history, roughly 50% of the world could be a mother. Roughly, right? This is a, I'll give you a couple illustrations of what I'm pointing out. So, so to be a mother, which is a role, you had to be a woman. But now, to deny the role, mother, is to deny the person, woman. Or let me give you another example. So, so, so in our church, if you read our statement of faith... Um, we believe, which is in, um, which is sort of the, the, the classic historical view as it relates to gender and how men and women relate in the church. We say things like there are different roles in the church, different gifts. We all have different distinctions, but there is a distinction of role within the church. And we have men as pastors and elders. And that role, pastor, elder, is for exclusively for men and women are excluded. Now, the critique could come. And the critique does come to say, to deny role, elder, is to deny person. So it's to say that women are not as good as teachers, they're not as smart or gifted, they're not as pastoral in that sense. But here we see in the Godhead, we see that you can't do that with the Trinity. You can't say, oh, because the Son plays a different role in the Trinity, oh, you, we're going to deny personhood. No, the, the son is co-equal with the father. They just play different roles. And they're set side by side. So to deny a role isn't necessarily to deny personhood. Hierarchies, and I don't like that word when it comes to the Trinity because there's problems with that word, but just grant it for a second. But, but all hierarchies, whether marriage, church, family, society, they're not sinful. And we know that, or we could say all roles, because we see it in God himself. There is a differentiation between persons of God, even in the Godhead. Now, now I say that to say that, that order and hierarchies have been corrupted. Sin is in our world, and perhaps every hierarchy can be infused by sin and can be abused. But as Augustine says, never judge a philosophy by its abuses. And I think it's interesting that, that when, in this text, when we talk about the role between father and son and how that dynamic works, do, do, do you know how that dynamic works in perfect harmony? Look at it, verse 20. And this is not surprising. Verse 20 tells us how this inner Trinitarian relationship between father, son, and spirit, how they're Equal in essence, yet they have different roles, and how that doesn't lead to chaos and corruption. Why? Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Love. Love is the ingredient necessary. I mean, I mean, this is all over the Bible. I'll just give you one more, okay? And, and we could talk about this 
for hours afterwards and come see me if you want to talk more about this. But think about 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, and he writes to this church, and there's all these problems in 1 Corinthians, or in the Corinthian church. All these problems. And so he talks about in chapter 12 spiritual gifts, that they were all unique, distinct, different. But how do we have oneness in our distinctiveness? Just flip the chapter, chapter 13. And what's chapter 13 all about? If you've been to a wedding recently, you know what chapter 13 is all about? What's it about? Love. He, Paul binds the distinctiveness in the church. We all have different personalities. We all have different gifts. We all have different experiences. And he says, how do we have unity? Love. But, but not earthly love. Not horizontal love. John 17, and I'm going to steal a a second, but I'm going to leave that until um, probably next year when we get to it. But John 17 talks about our unity as a church, but he doesn't root our unity as a church. He says, you're distinct, you have different gifts, but you are unified. And he doesn't say, oh, because you all like the same thing. It's interesting that he also says, oh, you you are unified because you all worship the same God. Mm -mm. Or you're all regenerate and have a new heart and you're all saved. Mm Mm-mm. He says, your unity is birth and source in God himself. So it's God's love, his inner Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Spirit, that perfect love. It's that love that creates our unity as a church. So so we need to harmonize and say, just because there's a denial in a role doesn't necessarily mean there's an attack or a denial on personhood. I will never know what it's like to have a child in my womb. I praise God for that, but I'm just saying that will never happen. But does that make me less than a woman? I don't think so. Equal in essence, different in role. And one of the wonderful things or glorious things, the reason why we teach that in our church isn't just because we came up with it. It's actually because we see it even in God himself. So, A lot could be said about that, but let's keep going. Go down to verse 27. Because not only is Jesus the Son of God, but, and this will be quite short, there's also a a title that Jesus steals from the Old Testament related to his identity. And this, again, it's in the context of why you can heal on the Sabbath. He says, I can heal on the Sabbath because I am the Son of Man. Verse 27. Now, where, where does Jesus steal that? Language, that title, Daniel. Now, I'm going to preach through Daniel. I'm taking my life into my own hands, but I'm going to start preaching Daniel in September. But Daniel 7, uh, we have this, this vision. Daniel has this amazing vision, and there's all these empires. There's all these beasts, and they represent different empires. And let's just say every empire, not good. Not, not good, to say the least. And they come, they rise, and they fall, like all empires, And yet, then the Ancient of Days comes, which is God. And then you have this Son of Man that comes. This is Daniel's vision. And it's amazing to see what this relationship between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. But the Son of Man sets up this humane and glorious and graceful kingdom. And this kingdom is like nothing else before this son, this son of man, he receives glory, dominion, honor. All peoples and all nations come and worship 
this son of man? And he rules and his dominion has no end. So all these empires, these bad empires, they rise and fall. But this king and this kingdom has no end. I mean, we live in a time where there's a lot of distrust in our government. I could think I could say safely. That the people are saying, I don't trust this kingdom, if we could call it that way. Oh, but not this kingdom. Not this kingdom at all. And just as an aside, I think it do all of us a lot of good to meditate much more on God's kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. So Jesus says, oh, you remember Daniel 7? That son of man? Who, who, who is that king who has set up a kingdom that will last forever, who receives worships from all nations? Oh, I am that king. I rule and reign. So why do I have the authority to heal a man on the Sabbath? Because I am the son of man. And we see, if we keep reading, that Jesus talks about that he has the authority to save and to bring resurrection power and the power to judge. But, but, but that, that power to save and to judge, there is a present tense and there's a future tense. Do, do you see it there? Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear this voice. This is future tense. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus has this fundamental power that starts with a man who gets healed as an object lesson for everyone in Jesus' day and us too, that Jesus really does have resurrection power. He can bring death to life, but far better than physical life to death. He can bring spiritual life to death. He can bring people spiritually alive and into his kingdom. And it does, it's just not at the, not, not future tense, not just someday, not just when you meet God, but actually you can experience that today, that present tense reality, that newness of life, just as that man did. He experienced newness of life. We can experience newness of life right now. Life in the Son of Man's kingdom. It's inaugurated but it's not yet. And we live in that tension. The tension of living in Christ's kingdom in which he rules and reigns and yet he hasn't fully consummated it. Because there's still sin, suffering, death, tears. But one day he will. He will come back as verse 28 and 29 reminds us. He will come back and all people will be resurrected. That's the Christian belief on resurrection. It's not the good guys who get resurrected. All people are going to get resurrected. So on that day, God will say, Hitler, rise. I don't want to be standing next to him, but that's going to happen. And he's going to stand before God and give an account. And the question that he's going to be asked is the same question we're all going to be asked. It's the question that we started with. What did you do with my son? When he spoke, when you heard his message, did you listen to him? Or did you not have enough time? Or did you just have, you know, some doubts or some skepticism? Or maybe you were bored with him? 
I think we should leave the text or leave maybe the sermon where the text leaves us with that most haunting of questions, which is, what are you going to say to God when he asks us all that question? What did you do with my son? And that question isn't going to be a present tense question. You're going to have to dip into the past to answer it. So what do we do today? What do we do with Jesus? There's one answer that I hope all of us would heed, which is we trusted him. We listened to him. We obeyed him. We ran towards him. We took refuge in him and we experienced the goodness of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, uh, we, we acknowledge that there are so many mysteries in your personhood, in who you are. And yet, Lord, we just marvel. We marvel at the great reality that you bring life out of death. And so we pray, Lord, we pray that you would meet us where we're at. We, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. And Lord, we pray that we would hear you and that we would run towards you and that we would experience the grace and mercy and love afforded to Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.